Our text for today as we continue in Matthew's Gospel and in the Sermon on the Mount is just one verse from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Hear the words of your Savior. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for the way that our Savior communicated to us, and we thank you for the spirit that preserved these words for us. And so we ask that same spirit to stir up our hearts, to hear the words of our Savior, to obey, and to apply them rightly. Fill me with your spirit as I communicate, and give us all good hearing today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How often do you find yourself disappointed by the behavior of other people? Is it something that happened once a week? Maybe it's daily? Is it a daily occurrence? Is it an hourly occurrence that you are disappointed in the behavior of other people? Because you have in your mind a, a set of expectations about how civilized, cultured people are supposed to act, how they're supposed to communicate, how they honor each other, how they care for each other's lives and time and property. You have this set of standards, but those standards are daily transgressed by the barbarians and the Philistines that populate your life and your community and your workplace and maybe even your home. Is your home full of Philistines who just don't know how to act? And you experience this. You set an appointment time to get coffee with a business associate, and because you care about other people's time and you respect other people's time, you show up 10 minutes early. If you always plan to be 10 minutes early, to every place and something crazy happens, traffic, red light, train, and then you might be on time. Um, and you do that. You, you plan to just be 10 minutes early because you don't want to waste anybody else's time. You want to honor their time. The person you're meeting shows up 20 minutes late and they didn't text and they didn't call. And when they get there, they're on the phone with somebody else and you sit there rankled. You sit there irritated that the person you're there to serve, who you tried to serve and tried to respect their time, doesn't respect your time at all. And so you're irritated. Or you reserve a space for an event, maybe a picnic shelter or a conference room. But the people who used it before you left a mess that you now have to clean up before you can use it for the thing that you reserved it for. Because you're careful to always leave things better than what you found them. You don't want to leave a mess for somebody else to clean up. When you leave an area, you don't want the area to look like a bomb went off. And so you are careful, but yet you find yourself cleaning up after careless, thoughtless, self-absorbed people. Or driving around town. You're just trying to get through your day and you pay attention to, to stoplights. You're not staring at your phone. When the light turns green, you go. You let other people merge. You use your turn signal. You know that thing on the side of your steering column that lets other people know where you're going so that there are no surprises? Those things are useful. And you use them. And uh, you don't tailgate. But it appears that you are in a minority. No one seems to have the same set of standards. Everyone's just in their own world. And each day is full of manifold opportunities for disappointment and offense and irritation and annoyance. So the temptation for us is to just stop caring. The temptation for us is to say, if no one else adheres to any standard, then why should I? Why should I make any effort at all? Why should I care about anybody else's time? Nobody cares about my time. 
And, and if I'm going to have to clean up after everybody, well, I'm just going to leave messes wherever I go and not care about other people's property. I'm going to hot rod through the streets and everybody better get out of my way because it's me against the world. You better look out. Here I come. That's a real temptation. It's a temptation in a deteriorating society like the one we live in, where the fabric of human relationships, our connections to each other, just as people in this, in this society, our connections are threadbare. In this country, we don't love our neighbors. We don't care about them. We're threatened by others. We're annoyed by some others. They're an impediment to get to what we want. And so it's exceedingly tempting to check out and just say, we're going to live just like the barbarians. We're going to join them in their destruction of whatever's left of our civilization. And then we remember that we are a people who have the name of the Trinity impressed on us at our baptisms. We are people who live in union with Christ the King. And so we don't have that option. We're not free to imitate the incivility of the pagans. We are building a Christian civilization, underscore Christian, underscore civilization. We are trying to be civil. We are trying to have a, a, an arena of love and mutual sacrifice and adoration and looking out for each other. And so we're required to conduct ourselves in humility and gentleness and patience and self-control. And while our world is indeed in great disarray, we're not living in the first time in history to ever experience this kind of social disintegration. What was left of Israel, which was known as Judah in the time of Jesus, was also a disintegrating society. In our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen this along the way. We've seen the family unraveling under rabbis who permitted divorce for just any old reason. Uh, adultery and fornication were trivialized. Political and religious factions escalated their divisions into actual violence. These were not academic disagreements where people would discuss things over port and cigars and kind of chuckle at each other's uh, silly notions and say, my good sir, that's such a preposterous notion. That's not what's going on in the world of the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see people killed for their convictions. This was an environment more intense and way more vicious than any of us have ever lived in. We think we have grievances and disappointments. Their very lives were threatened by all kinds of powerful forces. Now Jesus comes, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he is calling his people, his church, out of that chaos, and he gives them a new set of marching orders, a new way to live. And a summary of his message, and indeed a summary of the whole canon of the law and the prophets he commands us this. He says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. That's a good memory verse for little people, especially for all of us, certainly. Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. That's his answer. That's the answer of our Lord on how you and I are supposed to live in a disruptive, barbaric, tumultuous time. And thinking in the context that he's speaking in, just as I've just described, it may at first sound like what Jesus is recommending here, what Jesus is commanding, 
is awfully benign. It looks almost passive, maybe even weak. Hey, if you want to get taken advantage of, if you want to get plowed under by hateful, boorish people, we'll just do this. But in fact, when we study it, we discover that what Jesus is proposing is quite revolutionary. This is the way that the world is redeemed. This is the way, by following the words of Jesus, this is the way that the kingdom of heaven breaks into the earthly realm. When the righteousness of Christ's people surpasses the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, when Christ's reign is realized in every sphere of human life, it comes out when people obey this command, which is called the golden rule in common language. This command, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Now, again, it may seem benign. It may seem very passive to us because we pull this out. We read this in isolation from the rest of the text. And if we don't understand the context, then we will easily miss uh, where this even fits in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I've got a big stack of commentaries on Matthew's gospel and on the Sermon on the Mount, and many writers and teachers often don't know where to put this. They think, this sounds like it was just tacked on there. Where does this go? Where does it fit? Does it, does it go with the things that Jesus was just saying about prayer, ask and it will be given to you? Does it, does it go with the next section where he talks about enter the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction? And then he starts talking about false teachers. Is that where it fits? Where does this fit thematically? Well, it's pretty simple when he says, therefore, it must be a conclusion to something he said before. And in fact, Jesus has done this a few times already in the Sermon on the Mount. He will give us a body of teaching and then summarize it with a therefore. He concludes this body of teaching with a therefore. If you have your Bible open and you want to flip a couple of pages backwards, a couple of pages backwards to um, Matthew 5.19, he has given us the Beatitudes and then he summarizes it with this. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That's his summary of the Beatitudes. And then he reapplies and, and reintensifies the law. Remember that whole section we studied where he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And then he summarizes that in chapter 5, verse 48, with this. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is how you are complete. This is how you mature, by following my application, my fulfillment of the law. And then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And he talks about our treasure that's laid up in heaven. And then he, he summarizes that in 625. He says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. And then, and then he uh, recaps that. He says it again in verse 34. He says, um, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will, be, will, will worry about its own things. So which means that in our Bibles, in chapter 7, he started a new section of teaching. He's got a new body, a new, a new set of things to tell us. And now in this verse that we read this morning, this is the conclusion of all of that. So what did we start with? when we? Stand? And I know it's been a few weeks, but we'll, we'll quickly review this. 
At the beginning of chapter 7, that's where he says, judge not lest you be judged. He talks about hypocrisy, uh, the whole section about if you have a, a plank in your own eye, how can you see to remove the moat that's in your brother's eye? And then he talks about giving what is holy to the dogs and casting pearls before swine. And then he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and uh, your father knows what you need. He's going to give you good gifts. And at the end of this section, the whole body, don't uh, be careful in your judgment. Uh, don't judge uh, hypocritically. Uh, don't cast your pearls before swine. Ask and it will be given to you. Therefore, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophet. So that's the summary of that whole section that came before, okay? Well, what, what, does, that, what does that mean? Well, you apply that to every one of these things that he's just been talking about. Do you, on the subject of judgment, do you like to be judged by men's unbiblical standards? Do you like harsh criticism from hypocrites? Well, if you don't, you know, however you want men to judge you, judge them. And then, do you think it's wise to waste good and holy and precious things to cast pearls before swine? And if you're on the receiving end, do you want to be placated in your error? Do you want men to pacify you, to appease you in your error? Or do you want to be lovingly corrected? Well, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. And then the whole section on prayer. He says, your father is good. Your father is tender and big hearted to all those who seek him in prayer. He graciously gives all kinds of happy blessings to you. So you also, you imitate your father in heaven, take initiative and you be open-handed. So see this command, which, which we call the golden rule, is not an abstraction. We, we don't just pull this out and let it, let it live on its own. We don't just fill this with whatever meaning we want to fill it with. It's embedded in this whole section, which is all about how we go about building together a new heavenly community with Christ at the center, a, a community that imitates the love of the Father. It's a community that has learned how to forgive by being forgiven. It's a community that has learned how to lay aside a multitude of griefs and offenses by being on the receiving end of a mercy that has wiped the slate clean. It's a community that has learned how to kill the root of bitterness and learned that from a God who doesn't dangle our sins over our head, but who has thrown our sins behind our back because he's absorbed the penalty of those sins in himself. And he turns and gives us not what we deserve, but he gives us all kinds of good gifts that we don't deserve. It's a community that has learned to give by receiving. It learns to befriend because it has been befriended by God. Now see, these things are absolutely radical and revolutionary among the nations and the families of the earth who do not know our king who do not know our God. They, they have no mechanism for the forgiveness of sin. They have no way to process guilt, no way to deal with offense. There's only shame and vengeance and death, all kinds of violence. But we are a people who can process sin and offense because of who our Savior is. Well, well that's what the therefore is therefore. When he says, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. That's the summary. And, and here it is, as simply as I can state it. Because you are sons, 
Because you have been forgiven, because you have been delivered from judgment, you are free to show mercy. You are liberated to do this. You are not obligated to live under the economy of shame or to perpetuate the economy of shame. You are not enslaved to guilt. You're not constricted to follow the laws of vengeance where you lose face if you don't pay back what people have coming to them. You are freed to live in a wide open way that leads with kindness and graciousness to take initiative in righteousness, to break new ground by participating in this peaceful, productive, joyful community. Jesus makes another bold statement when he says, this sums up the law and the prophets. Do to whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He doesn't say, well, now if you do this, you no longer need the law and the prophets. You don't need to know the law and the prophets. No, in this very same sermon, remember Jesus says, don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So, so we don't replace the law and the prophets with the golden rule. The law and the prophets tell us how to keep it. Otherwise, we would possibly be left to the tyranny of everyone's individual preferences. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, could be misinterpreted and misapplied in all kinds of silly and destructive ways. For example, I don't like raspberries, and I don't think you should like them either. I think they're disgusting. They don't taste good at all. I would like to eradicate them from the face of the earth. I would like you to do that for me. I would like you to eradicate raspberries, and so I'm going to do that for you. Well, that would be a really silly and obnoxious way to live because some of you like them. I don't know why. I don't understand it, but I believe you when you say that you like them. And so it's really ugly and rude and destructive for me to um, think that that would be loving to, to do that thing. You see, that's the kind of, and I, that's an extreme and silly example, but that would be the kind of way of pulling this out of the context of the Law and the Prophets and filling it with our own understanding. To, to, to blindly and woodenly impose my preferences in the way of the golden rule. Uh, but it's only if you take it in a vacuum. You see, part of this uh, application of the golden rule is I have to know what it means to love you. I have to learn how to esteem you more highly than myself. And it may mean that I serve you raspberries for dessert, even if I don't enjoy them. Again, a silly extreme example. The point is you must know the law and the prophets if you're going to understand how to apply this law. This is the summary of it. It is, uh, it is based on, it is resting on the law and the prophets. In fact, the golden rule is all over the Hebrew scriptures. This, this principle is the foundation of all the laws which apply uh, to human society. All the laws that God gives that govern human society are based on what Jesus says here. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Exodus 22, 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember the way that you were abused by people in power when you were in the minority? Do you remember that back in Egypt? Treat the stranger the way you wish you were treated back then. In Exodus 23, 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. So if you see your enemy in trouble, 
you are required to treat him like a brother and do the thing that you would want done for you. If your animal gets loose and your neighbor sees it wandering around, what would you want to happen there? Even if you and your neighbor are not on speaking terms, even if you've got a problem between you, you would want him to retrieve your animal and get it back to you. Um, all the Ten Commandments that have to do with interpersonal relationships, do not murder, do, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness against your neighbor, don't covet your neighbor's property or his wife uh, or his servants, don't, don't, don't despise the boundaries of your neighbor's life and profit, property. All those commandments are all predicated on the understanding that you would not want anybody to do any of these things to you so you don't do them to anyone else. Leviticus 19 has a similar summary. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus isn't saying here, well, you know, you can just forget everything God's word said before now. You can just break and, and leave that away and, and, and throw it away. Just be nice to everybody. That's not what he's saying. To the contrary, the law and the prophets gives us the the guardrails for our obedience in keeping the golden rule. It doesn't mean anything we want it to mean. We don't pour our own meaning into it. It is, it, if it is a summary of the law and the prophets, it takes into account everything that pleases God and rejects and prohibits everything that is inconsistent with his holiness and righteousness, which don't forget, Jesus says this right after he talks about pigs and dogs and right before he talks about false prophets. So it's not this somehow defanged, uh, soft gospel. Uh, what, what he says is, what, what I want men to do to me, how I want to be treated, must be informed by God's law and not by my sinful compulsions or my biblically illiterate assumptions. This is grounded in the law and the prophets. Keeping this then and doing what Jesus says here requires active consideration of what kind of initiative toward others pleases God. And therefore, this doesn't put us in a passive, reactive sort of posture. For example, Jesus did not say, treat people the way that they treat you. That's not what he says, does he? That's not the golden rule. What is that? Treat others the way they treat you. That's old eye for eye justice. He doesn't say do back to them what they did to you. He says treat them the way you want to be treated. Treat them the way they should treat you, even if they're not. This is an entirely different thing. Another passive way to interpret this, another passive way to read this is to think Jesus is saying, don't do anything that you would not want done to you. But again, that's not what he says. He doesn't say, don't do anything that you would not want done to you because uh, you could do nothing and obey that law. You know, just leave everybody alone entirely and you could check that one off the list. Yeah, I keep that one because I don't do anything. But again, what Jesus is calling us to, this is not passive, it's not inactive, it's not reactive, it's proactive. Jesus says, I want you to be actively doing the good for them that you want done for you. Do for them what you want done for you. In your personal relationships, in your marriage, with your children, with your family and friends and business associates, with your neighbors and your fellow church members, 
and especially your enemies. Imagine the best, most righteous, most loving thing that somebody could do for you and go do for them that thing. So it's not about, about being reactive. It's about being redemptive. When it comes to our enemies, and especially the people that offend us or annoy us, we tend to think in terms of justice. You know, if somebody, somebody really hurts us or does something wrong to us, we think, well, they deserve to be treated the same way that they treated me. Justice is about giving people back what they've done to us, giving them what they have coming to them, paying them back what they're owed. But that's not the kind of thing that Jesus is promoting here. In human terms, justice is an effort to reset things. Justice brings us back as much as we can, brings us back to the way things were before there was sin or offense. And that works to an extent if there's stolen property or broken things, if I borrow something and I break it. Justice means I repay you and we put things kind of back the way they were uh, before they were at the start. It just resets everything. But it's more complicated in human relationships. If I say something to hurt you or I damage your reputation or if I spread a lie about you, how do we reset that? How do we put the toothpaste back in the tube? How do we get that back to where it starts? We can't. We can't reset that. And so we need something new that moves the relationship beyond uh, uh, where it was in the past. And Jesus shows us how to do that. Because if we try to repay justice in these kinds of relationships, what it means is putting somebody in the penalty box or hanging their guilt over them for the rest of their life. That's your penalty to walk around with this, with this dark cloud over you. You're in relational purgatory for the rest of your life. But Jesus is talking about something greater. He's talking about something way better than our warped sense of justice. And it's something that Jesus demonstrates himself at the cross, which is a way to forgive astronomically significant offenses, which is our sinful treason against the creator of the universe. And it gives us in the cross this way of living that pushes history forward, not trying to reset everything back to some point in the past, but to move the world to something new. It's a way to advance the kingdom and bring the world closer to the complete union of heaven and earth. That's when we learn to do for other people what he has done for us, to imitate our savior in his initiative to do for us what we needed doing, which we could never do for ourselves. We deserve raw justice, but the, 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 the raw justice that we deserved would have been to wipe out every human from the face of the earth. That wouldn't move history forward. The cross and the resurrection and the ascension, however, do move uh, history forward, and we get to participate that in, in that in our uh, way of living when we follow Jesus. Now, now this is a really big deal, um, and I don't want to make it sound so big that it's incomprehensible or too abstract, so I'm going to bring it back to the way that this golden rule works itself out in human history, the way that it works out in the advance of the kingdom begins in all the little ways that it works out in our relationships, in our homes, in our cars, in our workplaces. We obey what Jesus says here. We follow the golden rule. When we exercise the judgment of charity, 
when we hear or see something that might be offensive and we choose to not be offended. We, we choose to not be insulted by this. We initially assume the best of our brothers and sisters and our family members. We assume the best unless we have substantial reason to think otherwise. We don't rush to being offended. We don't choose to be insulted. If someone says something that you don't know quite how to take it, a way to apply what Jesus says here is to think, I want to be treated with grace. I want to be treated with respect. And so um, uh, maybe I misunderstood them. Maybe they didn't mean it the way that I'm taking it. Maybe they were confused or uninformed about the thing that they said. I know them and I know that they wouldn't deliberately hurt me. So I'm going to let love cover it until I have an opportunity to sort through this, to figure it out. That's our default setting because of this reality. Have you ever said something that came out sounding worse than you intended it? Have you ever said something that was misconstrued by the hearer? Have, have you ever regretted your choice of words and you really didn't mean anything bad about it? But remember driving home from that dinner party or that lunch meeting and you say, ah, oh, I didn't really mean that the way it came out. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. In those situations, do you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt? Do you want people to give you a little space to be able to correct it? Would you like to be handled charitably in those cases? Well, do that for other people. Don't look for reasons to be offended. Now, when somebody says something that's crazy or outlandish or, or weird or strange or, you know, even, even you, you might say, wow, that's, that sounds really off. You may initially, you may initially well, say, wow, what's he, what's he doing? But you have to choose to be offended over it. You have to choose to be insulted. You have to choose to nurse it and go over it and over it and over it in your mind and say, what did he mean by that? What's, what's he trying to do? What's he trying to pull here? Uh, you, you, you may be confused about something that someone says or does, um, but you have to choose to nurture offense. You want people to be understanding with you, then you treat others with understanding. The older I get, the more I understand, the more I realize that most people are not trying to hurt you. They're not trying to offend you. They're not trying to mistreat you. Most people, I'm saying most people because there are some miscreants. <laughs> there, are some, there are some malevolent people. There are some really hurtful people. But there are also lots and lots and lots of thoughtless people. There are self-absorbed people which do things that really aren't directed towards you. It's just directed toward themselves or just what they're doing. Most people are just trying to get through the day. And many of these people that we're offended by or insulted by are weak or poorly taught or they just don't have any great examples in their life. And we get offended to high heaven over stuff that's not even directed toward us. While at the same time, you and I want lots of charity on our bad days. We want lots of grace when we say something that we didn't really mean or when we're thoughtless or when we do things in ignorance. How do you want to be handled when you are really messing up? How do you want to be handled? Well, you want to be handled carefully and gently and with humility. There is so much grace in Jesus' commands in, in Matthew 18 when he tells us how to deal with problems. He says, if your brother offends you, go and tell him his sin between you and him alone. There's so much grace in that because... 
there's a chance that we're extending to him. There's an opportunity for him to correct the wrong that he's in the midst of doing or to explain that the way that we see things may not be entirely accurate. Maybe we're confused. He possibly doesn't even know that what he's doing is offensive. Or maybe our perception, our perception is off. But you have an opportunity to flush all that out. We must all extend the same graciousness that we want exercised toward us. And on top of that, to ex exercise a, a kind of holy forgetfulness over past offenses. The Lord says he removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He throws our sins behind his back and he doesn't bring them up again. It's not easy for us to do that because we aren't God and we can't just will ourselves to forget things. But you can consciously choose every time some stale old offense comes to mind, something that's been forgiven, something that's been dealt with, you can choose every time that comes to mind to put it away and to pray for the Holy Spirit to help you forget it, to put it in its place. Why? Because you don't want to be defined the rest of your life by your worst mistake, do you? You don't want to go around everybody looking at you like, eh, that's, that's that guy. That's the guy who really messed up there. You want people to see past your past. You want everyone to give you space to grow and mature in godliness. So you treat others the way you want to be treated and forget what is forgiven. Show, demonstrate how this is done by your forgiveness and your treatment of other people. See, this, what Jesus does here is he puts all the initiative on us. Whatever you want men to do to you, go and do that for them. Several years ago, I heard a complaint from a young mother who said, I went to that church for five years talking about a place she was a member. And she said, nobody ever, none of the women ever invited me to coffee, to meet them for coffee. Nobody ever invited me to bring my children along to the park and have a picnic with their kids. Nobody ever did that for me. And what was my question? <laughs> my question was, did you ever invite anybody to coffee? Did you ever invite anybody to meet you at the park and have a picnic with the kids? And her answer was, no, I was a young mom. I was new there. And, and I, thought, I thought people would wrap me into what they were doing. In her, in her mind and her heart, she thought that there was this big party going on all the time that she wasn't invited to. And as it turns out, there were a lot of no, new moms in that congregation, a lot of young women who also were not getting together on any regular basis. And it was like they were all looking around for somebody to make the first move. And here she was offended when I asked, did you ever invite anybody? You see, what Jesus commands us to do is to initiate. What is it that you want to happen? You want to be the kind of church that has coffee and picnics? Well, you be the straw that stirs the drink. You be the party animal that gets everybody motivated to go do these things. You make it happen. See, the golden rule is like this, like this multi-tool. The, the golden rule uh, is like this handy little Swiss army knife that always works for whatever your situation, whatever, whatever the problem, it has a solution. If you're wondering what you should do, pull it out and see how it applies. Use it in every circumstance of life. Would you want to buy the item that you're selling? Would you want to eat the meal that you're cooking? Would the job that you're doing 
for someone else be good enough if someone was doing that job for you? Would you be satisfied if your employee worked as hard and as carefully as you are working? Would you want to be treated by a customer the way you are treating the person on the other side of the counter? Do you like to clean up after other people's messes? Do you like to clean up after other people's children's messes? Well, when you're on the highway and somebody's trying to merge, do, um, uh, say you're trying to merge onto the highway, do you like space to merge? Or do you like somebody to ride right alongside of you? And neither speed up or slow down. Just wait right there until you run out of pavement. That may sound like a small thing, but it's an orientation toward life that puts yourself in the shoes of another person and says, how would I like to be treated the way that I am treating this person? It puts the responsibility on us. In every one of these little cases, as we have opportunity, we take the kingdom into the marketplace and onto the highway and into the school and onto the athletic field. The, the initiative is on us not to think that we're going to somehow lead the world by our disappointment. We're going to lead the world by our scorn. Everybody's going to see the scowl on my face, and they'll be ashamed of their behavior, and they'll change. Don't think that people are going to pick up on your disappointment and repent. Uh, that's not going to happen. They won't. They'll just think you're another jerk who's going through their day mad at everybody. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. There is a, there is a way to lead by joyfully, lovingly embodying the kingdom in the way we communicate, in the way we carry ourselves, in the way we dress and behave. Our perpetual disappointment over unbelievers acting like unbelievers accomplishes nothing. It doesn't do anything. But joy in doing what Jesus called us to brings heaven to earth. Now, uh, quickly, this is important to point out, many writers and thinkers attempt to make the point, this golden rule, that's not really original to the Bible, it's not even original to Jesus, but, but it's kind of a universal rule, it's present in all the world religions. You might have seen that, that Norman Rockwell painting where he's got representatives of all the world religions and he's got the, the words of Jesus written over the front of that painting as if to say, hey, we're pretty much all the same here. We're all doing the same thing. It's all about the golden rule. The golden rule supposedly appears in a lot of other places like the Rabbi Hillel who lived 100 years BC. He wrote, do not do to others what is hateful to you. Confucius wrote or said, do not to others what you do not wish done to yourself. The Greek philosophers said, do not do to others that which angers you when it is done to you. Well, what's in common there? Well, they're all negative and they're all passive. Well, Jesus' words are positive and active. The, the idea that we're all just kind of saying the same thing and this is something that we all just kind of arrived at on our own, it it fails to take into account that the law of Moses was circulating the world 4,000 years ago and that if there was any truth that got through to any of these uh, uh, peoples of the world, it came from God, it came from his Holy Spirit. If it's true, it came from him. And in addition to that, it's, it's assumed that not only is this kind of a universal maxim, but in fact, it's all you really need. It doesn't matter what you believe or the God you worship, just follow the golden rule and everything's gonna work out for you. Well, how's that working out now? <laughs> if, if everyone has heard the golden rule and everybody thinks it's a good idea um, and, and everybody knows it, why don't we have heaven on earth 
already? Well, because even if we know it, we haven't kept it. Here's the supposedly universal law that we all think is a good idea, and everyone falls short at it. Everyone fails to keep it. We've heard it, we know it, and we've all failed to do it about a million times. We've probably failed to do it today. We haven't kept it because we're sinners. And because we're sinners, we need a savior. We need to be delivered by the man who kept this law perfectly, who has power to forgive our sins, to absorb the judgment that's due to us for our sins, and to give us his spirit so that we have the ability to follow this at all. You cannot keep this golden rule apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in you and on you. It's impossible to keep this apart from God's Holy Spirit. However, with the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you can, it is possible. You can know what is good and right and well-pleasing to God in any interpersonal situation. You know what's good and right, and then you do it. Your hands aren't tied. In every circumstance in life, there is always, always, always a way to obey the Lord Jesus and to do the thing that fulfills the law and the prophets. It's almost never the easy way. It's almost always the hard way. Like the cross, the cross was the hard way, but it's the way that brings the new creation crashing into the old creation. And so Jesus calls us to do this, to put ourselves into the place of others. Use your imagination and think. Jesus uses the word wish, desire. What do you wish men would do to you? Dream up the most wonderful thing you would like to have happen and wish for others what you wish for yourself. If we would do this, we would not be haughty or prideful or abrasive or cruel. We would be gracious and merciful and would be kind like our God. What would our homes be like if everybody in the house followed this? What would our classrooms be like? Our offices, our businesses? It'd be kind of like heaven, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty great. Here is the key. It's your job to take the initiative. You do this. You lead the way. You take the initiative and bring heaven crashing into earth. Let's pray. Father, we hear you and we hear the words of your son, but we need your spirit. We need your power to help us to obey. Remind us of this. Forgive us of where we failed in the past and conform us continually. In Jesus' name, amen.